Today's sermon is taken from the book of John, chapter 18, verse 13 to 27. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who, has the, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire, because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, and standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what? But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Amen. Thank you, Pam. Let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, what a text this is. Now we're getting closer and closer, Lord God to the narrative of your son's crucifixion. Um, it is no light thing, Father, that we come upon these texts, this narrative, as Jesus approaches this death. This death, Lord God, that we should have died. This death that we deserve. This death that was actually meant to be for us, but instead he voluntarily took it up upon himself so that we might have life and that his righteousness, his obedience might be credited to us. Father, help us now, help us focus on these passages, help us focus on the sense of this text, help us know the narrative well, help us understand it so well, Lord God, that we come away being lost in this story, being lost in this history, the history of your salvation, the history of our redemption. Father, help us in these ways by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we're coming uh, close towards the climactic part of the John's Gospel, where Jesus is being crucified. We saw last week in our series in the Gospel of John, at the end of verse 12 in John chapter 18, that Jesus had just been handed over to the high priest. Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that the betrayal was to come, and Judas did meet him there, and he was taken off by the soldiers, carried off into the high priest, and then now we're in this portion of John chapter 18, verses 13 to 27, where Jesus is facing the first court. He's going to face two courts before he's actually crucified. The first court is this Jewish court where Jesus is before the high priests. And in the second court, we're going to see next week, is John, I mean, sorry, it's Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman court. So the Jewish court first, which is what we're going to cover this week, and then the Roman court, which we're going to cover next week. And in this passage, we're not just going to cover that 
court, the Jewish court where Jesus is being questioned by the high priest of Judaism, the people that are crucifying him, the people have plotted against him all this time, but also Peter's betrayal. So there's this interchange between Jesus and the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, and there's also this Peter betrayal here. So there's a lot going on in this passage, and because of that, we have five points for today. Five points, which is, I know, unorthodox in CCC, um, I didn't stop believing in the Trinity. I believe that three points is... No, anyway, that's a joke. But um, uh, normally in CCC we have three points. But this sermon, I think, just needed to have five points because I, th- I try to make it into three points. I really did, I promise you. But there's just too much going on in this passage. And, and I think if I reduce it into three points and I try to make it into three points with a nice logical flow, we might lose the narrative of this passage. This is a narrative. This is a historical narrative and it's written in a particular way so that you would follow the story along, right? It's no, for example, it's no coincidence that Jesus's, inter, you know, Jesus's conversation with the high priest, Jesus's interrogation with the high priest is right in between Peter's first denial and the second and third denial. If you remember in John chapter 13, for example, Jesus already said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows, right? You're going to deny me three times. So the reader in John chapter 18, if you're reading just along, Peter denied him once. You're thinking immediately, oh, Jesus, Jesus told us he's going to deny us three times. But then suddenly you have the scene of Jesus and the high priest. So what's up with that? What's up with the scene change there? Right? There's a narrative flow there. So I could have made this into three points. It would have been pretty easy. It would have been Peter's denial, the nature of the denial, Jesus, the high priest. Boom. That's going to be the middle of the passage. That's the middle of the story. So I think for this particular passage, we just got to go with the flow of the story. There's, gonna, there's something going on here. And the, the narrator, John, the author of this gospel, wants you to see not just Jesus' interlocution, Jesus' conversation with the high priest, Jesus is questioning by the high priest, but also that in contrast to and in connection with Peter's betrayal specifically. So there's a lot going on here, and I hope we would really um, get the sense of the flow of the narrative here in the story. So first, we've got to cover the setting. This is in verse 13 and 14. This sets up everything that's about to happen. And in a sense, I would want to argue, 13 and 14 is kind of telling you a thesis of the whole of John's gospel, and in fact, a thesis of what's going to happen next, a summary of what the gospel even itself is, right? So look at what happens in verse 13. So remember from last week, they bound Jesus as if he was a lamb about to be crucified, a sacrifice for you. That's the end of verse 12. They bound him. And at verse 13, it says, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. So they're going to bring him to Caiaphas. And what do we learn about Caiaphas in verse 13? He says that it was a high priest that year. So he's going to be the main one who's interrogating Jesus. He's the main authority in Judaism as a religious authority who's about to question Jesus. Right? So that's verse 13. And then verse 14, the narrator, for some reason, wants you to remember that it was Caiaphas, this Caiaphas, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient. Expedient is another word for it was convenient or practical. That one man should die for the people. Now, if you want a nice one phrase, encapsulation of what the gospel is, that's it. One man shall die for the people. So if you hear anything, remember that one man should die for the people. It's The gospel is that Jesus Christ will die for a people. 
The gospel is that one man, Jesus, is not just your example. He's not just someone that you ought to follow, someone that you ought to be a disciple of, someone that you ought to be emulating as an example for your, for you and your life on you. But also, Jesus is your representative. He's your substitute. He will die for the people. So that you don't have to die. One man shall die for the people. But it's interesting who is saying this, right? It's Caiaphas. It's the high priest. Now, what do we know about the high priest and the religious authorities of Judaism in that day? The high priests were the ones plotting to betray Jesus. The high priests and, and the religious authorities of Judaism were the ones trying to get Jesus to die. They were the ones with, with, with evil intentions. They were maliciously trying to hand over Jesus to the Roman authorities so that he might be killed. So on the one hand, this is the, one of the best <laughs> summaries of what the gospel is, what God is up to. One man should die for the people. But on the other hand, who's saying it? Caphas. An arch enemy, a representative of God's enemy, right? A high priest who's trying to kill Jesus. And in fact, this is a reminder, actually. John chapter uh, 18, verse 14, points you back to John chapter 11, verse 47 to 50. You don't have to turn there. But there in, the, the, in John 11, verse 47 to 50, it was the first time Caiaphas shows up in this gospel. And Caiaphas there showed um, to be the one plotting for Jesus' death. And it was right after Lazarus was resurrected. And remember what happened there. Lazarus got resurrected. Jesus gets a lot more followers. And then the Jews are rattled. They don't end up believing in him because Jesus did this miracle of raising Lazarus up from the dead. Rather, they were more scared. They were more hardened in their unbelief. Why? Because more people were believing in Jesus, Jew and Gentile. And so they're wondering now. They're These people are calling Jesus Lord. But Caesar is Lord. Remember, the Jews were living under Roman rule and authority. So if people are calling Jesus Lord, and the Jews are calling Jesus Lord, wouldn't the Romans then want to get rid of us? Wouldn't the Romans want to get rid of the Jews? Because the Jews are following another Lord threatening Caesar's authority. Because Caesar's Lord. So why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Why did Caiaphas propose at that point, the first time, it's very explicit, explicitly they would, they, would, they would plot to kill Jesus. Why? Their reasoning was this. If we kill Jesus, this person that all these Jews were calling Lord and are drawing Romans away from Caesar, then Caesar will leave us alone. If we kill Jesus, the Roman authorities, Caesar, we won't, we won't bother them anymore. They're going to leave us alone and they're going to they're gonna allow us to live they won't destroy us, in other words. So if we kill Jesus, the Roman authorities won't kill us. So in John 11, Caiaphas actually says it. If we kill Jesus, we get saved. <laughs> if Jesus dies, we get our lives. But that's what Caiaphas thought he was doing. So he was plotting against Jesus because he wanted to save the Jewish people from a Roman death. He wanted to save the Jewish people from a Roman execution. But that's a point of irony because, in a sense, that's also what God was up to. Jesus would be delivered up, yes, according to the plots of Caiaphas, yes, according to the plots of these Jews who were trying to be expedient, who were trying to be pragmatic, who was conveniently trying to kill Jesus to get away from Roman suspicion. But here's what this text is saying. What these men intended for evil, 
what these what Caiaphas, what the high priests, what the Jews were intending for their own political gain, for their own advantage, for their own safety, for their own pragmatic purposes, God was at the same time using, yes, to kill Jesus too, but not from Roman authority, but so that you might be saved, for the people might be saved from their sins, from death itself, from destruction itself, from hell, from wrath. So there's this irony that's taking place here because these Jews were trying to kill Jesus for one reason and God was using that specific plot but using it for a very completely different reason. Does that echo another passage in the Bible for you? You know, it's amazing. If you read the book of Genesis, this is still the first point. The book of Genesis, right? Remember the story of Joseph. In Genesis 15 verse 20, right? Joseph says something astounding to his brothers. Remember what happened to Joseph? Joseph was sold off into slavery by his brothers because they hated him. They envied Joseph and and the brothers hated Joseph. And Joseph was sold off into slavery into Egypt. But then lo and behold, many years later, Joseph actually rose into power in Egypt. And precisely because Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and Joseph rose into power in Egypt, when a famine hits Joseph's brothers, they ran to Egypt. And who did they found in rule and in charge of all the food in Egypt? Joseph. And the brothers became astounded. So the very, the very reason why Joseph was, was in Egypt in the first place was the evil of the brothers. But you know what? Remember what Joseph said? After Joseph gave them food, after Joseph saved his own brothers who betrayed him so that they might survive the famine, Joseph said, what you intended for evil God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And this echoes that, right? What Caiaphas and the Jews intended for expediency, intended for pragmatic, self-serving purposes, God intends for the salvation of his people. And that's the setting. That's what's going to set up what's about to happen here in Jesus' crucifixion. The author wants you to remember that as Jesus is about to be crucified here. Keep that in mind. This is why Jesus is going to die. Not simply for the survival of the Jews from Roman persecution, but for the salvation of his people. So that's what's setting it up here. That's verse 14. That's the first point. One man shall die for his people. Now as this text now then dives to Peter's betrayal. Verse 15 to 18 now. So second point, Peter's first denial. I think this text is trying to teach us now, if, if Jesus is going to die for a people, who are these people? What are they like? Who are these people? What are they like? In other words, what, what is it that makes up this, this people? What, what qualities are, what are they like? What, why, why did Jesus die for them? Or who, who and what do these people look like that he would die for them? All right? Is it just for the Jews who are trying to kill him? Is it for the Romans? Surely not for his own disciples, you would think, because his disciples are holy, right? He wouldn't have to die for his own. He wouldn't die for his own disciples, surely. So here's where Peter's denial comes in. Because I think that's what the text is trying to tell you. Who is Jesus going to die for? What kind of people? Well, look at Peter here. Look at John chapter 15 and onwards. Second point, Peter's first denial. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. We don't know who this disciple is. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, 
he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant at the door said to Peter, You are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter was with them, standing and warming themselves. Now there's a lot of features about this text that clues you into what Peter's betrayal is about. All right? First, look, Peter was standing outside. This text is cluing you into the fact that Peter right now at this point was an outsider to Jesus. So there's this disciple, whoever this disciple is, he's on the inside, and this disciple had to invite Peter in. But even when Peter was outside the door, and then he came in, Peter, in a sense, remained outside. Why? Because at the end of this particular portion, right, Peter was warming himself with other people by charcoal fire. We're going to get back to that later. He was warming himself, so he wasn't watching the scene intently. He wasn't part of the interrogation process. He wasn't there witnessing everything that's about to take place between Jesus and the high priest. Rather, Peter was warming himself in another part of this courtyard with other people. But look at verse 17. When Peter was brought in, a servant girl was the one who first asked Peter, In other words, Peter's first betrayal, Peter's first denial of who Jesus is, came in reaction to and because of his fear of a servant girl. And the author wants you to know it's a servant girl. There's no one threatening. Just a servant girl by the door. Probably that's her only duty. And, you know, if you read commentators, she's she's probably a slave. Doesn't have any authority of her own. Doesn't have any name. Notice she wasn't named. Servant girl. Just just, just a doorkeeper. Who's probably a slave, and not only that, of a gender that was in that culture, looked down upon, who had no status. And yet Peter had the question of a particular servant. Was immediately fearful and said, I- I'm not. I'm not one of the disciples. Now, this is the question that you ought to be thinking, right? This is the same Peter who, just a few verses before, did what? He cuts off the servant's ear that was trying to apprehend Jesus. This is the same Peter who said in John chapter 13, Lord, I'm going to lay down my life for you. What are you talking about? You're going you're gonna to die for me? No, I'm going to lay down my life for you. This is the same Peter in John chapter 6 where 5,000 people leave Jesus and he's the first one to speak out of all the rest of the disciples. And he says, these people may leave you, Jesus, but you have the words of eternal life. I'm going to follow you no matter what. So in John chapter 6, John chapter 13, the first part of John chapter 18, Peter was the loudest. Peter was the most aggressive. Peter was the most enthusiastic of all of Jesus' disciples. And then, at the whisper, Calvin says it very provocatively, at the whisper of the little maidservant, Peter trembled and shook in the dark. What? in the world is happening to Peter here. In other words, what accounts for Peter's sudden spiritual cowardice? What is it that that, that explains the fact that Peter was bold and then suddenly he's not bold? What accounts for this person who was, in a sense, displaying himself to be on a spiritual high, the highest of all disciples, so to speak, right? First one to speak. 
most enthusiastic. And then suddenly, at the whisper of a servant girl, she denies Jesus immediately. Just like that. No threat. Nothing. Just denies him. Just like that. What, what, what gives a reason for that? You know, I think one way we could comprehend what Peter is doing here is that Peter, I think, at this point, he was following Jesus because Peter really thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government. Peter really thought, in other words, if I follow Jesus, this is the way to political and military victory over the Romans. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to have social reputation lifted up. I'm going to follow him. Look, he's doing miracles. He's doing all these things. People are believing in him. Surely, if I follow him, his honor will somehow be given to mine. And I have to prove to him. Peter, in other words, was a yes man up until this point. What's a yes man? Yeah, this came to a head of me. Um, when I was in, the, in Manila, just, just a month ago, I remember talking to one of the pastors um, who, who hosted me over there. And he made a particularly insightful, but also at the same time, humorous comment. Because he was talking to me about how he was, you know, gaining weight, he's, he's got kids, he's, 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 you know, it's just couldn't keep up with daily fitness anymore. And he says, yeah, you know, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing that I'm really not physically attractive. I'm like, okay, what do you mean by that? It means, Gray, that uh, my wife, when my wife loves me, I know she really loves me. You see, Gray, like, beautiful people have trust issues. I was like, what do you mean? Beautiful people are often popular. Popular people think that they have friends, but they don't really have friends. Why? Because popular, beautiful people want, they get all the attention. Why? Because people want to be associated with them because they get a lot of benefits out of them. You get a lot of social capital. You get a lot of social capital. So beautiful people never know who to trust. Beautiful people never know who to trust because deep inside they know you are only my friend or you call yourself my friend because I'm popular and somehow if you're associated with me, you get the social capital. But what if I lose my beauty? What if I lose my followers? What if suddenly, you know, I lose all my social capital? Would you still follow me? Would you? That's why beautiful people have trust issues. I don't have trust issues, Greg. I, I, I think I think you like me for who I am. I have no I have nothing to contribute to you. You see, now, to make that even more come come to home for you, you know, I was watching The Raid Two. It's a cult movie. I don't know if you guys saw it. It's a very violent action movie. I don't recommend that all of you watch it. But one one and one of the movies in The Raid Chapter Two, um, The Raid, one of my favorite movies. So that's a confession. It's a guilty pleasure. One of the one of the scenes of Raid Two, there was this mafia leader, who's you know, strip searching this bodyguard that he just hired, right? And in one of those scenes, when he's, he's searching this man, this bodyguard, by the way, has been working for him for the last three years, and very faithfully, and, and he searched him, and, you know, the bodyguard was kind of taken by surprise, like, you know me, and then, you know what the mafia leader said? He said, no, 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 don't take this personally. It's not that I don't trust you, I don't trust anyone. Why would a mafia leader say that? Because, you see, leaders especially authorities, know deep inside that a lot of the people that are around them are only with them because they want something out of them. Because they want something out of them. So of course they're going to say them everything that you, say to them everything that they want to hear. Yeah, I'm going to follow you. I will lay down my life for you. Sir, boss, you're, you're right. This is exactly what we should be doing. You're always the wisest. You're always the greatest. Why? Because they have all the power. They have all the authority. Do you know bosses like that? 
Do you know leaders like that? And that's why powerful people, any, just Google any, any article about leadership in Forbes magazine. You will get so many, so many updates about leaders feeling absolutely lonely because they have no idea who their true friends are. That if a financial calamity hits you, they get dropped. When they get into a tough situation and they can't contribute anymore in leadership, they get dropped. When they lose all their money, they get dropped. When they lose all their beauty, they get dropped. When they lose their popularity, they get dropped. What is Peter suddenly, I think, realizing here? Oh, Jesus is losing. Oh, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. Oh, I'm not getting the benefits that I thought I would get. Oh, this is going to cost me something. And by the way, this is an honor-shame culture, right? The disciples get associated to their teacher. The followers get associated to their leaders. Oh, Peter is suddenly realizing here, this is a kind of shame that I don't want to get myself into. This is a kind of shame I don't want to get myself into. And so at the whisper of a servant girl, Peter denies Jesus just like that. Do you ever know anyone? Have you ever been that person where you come to church and you're in a spiritual high for a particular season? Where we come to church for a spiritual high for a particular season? And then for another season, when once suffering hits and once obedience costs you something, you just stop following God. Just have no purpose at all to come to church. You don't feel like you need to anymore. Or the moment you get something that you wanted, your fervor, your zeal, your dedication, it's just gone. It fluctuates. You know what creates a fluctuating faith? Do you know what creates an unsustainable, shaky faith? It's if you desire Jesus or God for his benefits and not for who he is in himself. And that's what I think is happening with Peter. And now juxtapose that. And we're going to get back to the fire later, but just suppose that suddenly to what's happening in verse 18, sorry, verse 19 to 24. So, so as Peter was denying Jesus and warming himself, we're going to get back to that imagery later, warming himself by this fire with all of these other people right outside of this courtyard, right? Jesus is being questioned not by a servant girl, not by a slave. Not by someone of a lower class, not by someone who's not threatening, but rather by someone who is considered to be the highest religious authority in that day. The high priest. Look at verse 19. The high priest is the one questioning Jesus. So just imagine the scene, right? Peter, servant girl, I don't know what to do. I'm not. I'm not. He gets away. He warms himself because it was cold. And here's Jesus before the high priest, bound. That's the juxtaposition. That's the contrast that the, the, the Gospel of John wants you to see right now. That's why there's a scene play here that while Peter was doing this, here's what Jesus is going through. That's what the author of John wants to communicate to you. These scenes are happening simultaneously. And that's we're going to get back to Peter again. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. This, the third point, by the way. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world, and I have taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. In other words, why are you then questioning me again? Because I have never done anything in secret. I've opened publicly what my teaching and ministry is about. I've done miracles in public. Everybody saw Lazarus rise from the dead. That's why you're feeling threatened. In other words, there's something about this court 
that they knew was not legitimate, was not legal. They're questioning Jesus just to look like it's another real legal court, but it's not. Why are you questioning me? Jesus is answering him. I've spoken openly to the world. I don't keep anything in secret. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple, most public places where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And it's interesting, by the way, just to notice it there. The high priest questioned Jesus, but his question wasn't recorded. Only Jesus' response was. Just note that. And then verse 21, Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And we had said these things. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Just hitch Jesus like that. In verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I said what is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Tell me, give me some concrete evidence. But if what I said is right, why do you hit me? Why do you strike me? A few things bear mentioning here, right? If you just read verse 19 to verse 23, the high priest was questioning him. You would have assumed that this high priest was who? Caiaphas. Why? Because in verse 14, the only one who's mentioned to be a high priest was Caiaphas. So in verse 19, when it says the high priest and question Jesus, the only reference point that you have who was a high priest there at that point was not Annas, but Caiaphas. But in verse 24, it says Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So in verse 19, it says the high priest then questioned him. Then how come it's Annas who was actually the one questioning him and not Caiaphas in verse 24? Well, if you look at the... the there's, this is an interesting thing, I think, about this particular portion of, of John's gospel, and I'm trying to communicate this well. If you look at the historical records, if you look at the, 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 the Jewish historian Josephus, it was actually recorded that in that particular year, there was an oddity because there were actually two high priests. Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was actually a high priest over Caiaphas. And then there was Caiaphas. So there was Annas and Caiaphas. There were two high priests in authority. But John's gospel doesn't tell you that. If you're reading just from the Gospel of John itself, John's Gospel doesn't tell you that Annas was also a high priest. All it tells you is that it was Caiaphas who was the high priest in verse 13 and 14 and chapter 11. Only in verse 24 is it hinted that Annas was also a high priest. Now, if you're reading just this narrative, this Gospel is forcing you to ask the question, who's really the high priest? Who's really the high priest? I thought Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas was the one questioning. But notice, when Annas was the one questioning, his questions weren't recorded. Only Jesus' questions were recorded. Only Jesus' response were recorded. And by the way, Jesus' response does not betray timidity. Doesn't look like someone who's in fear. Doesn't look like someone who's not in control. Rather, he spoke openly and in authority with conviction and boldness not in fear, he wasn't shivering, he was simply speaking the truth forthrightly. And when he was struck, you are hit with this irony, because you're already lingering with this question, who was really the high priest? And not only that, the only ones, the only words being recorded is Jesus. Who's truly the high priest here? Who's really the religious authority here? Who's really the one in control here? It's Jesus. The high priest questioned him, but, but who's the real authority? Who's the real interceder? 
what is a high priest's task? A high priest's task, by the way, again, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, was what? He was an interceder. A priest was a mediator before the people of God and God. He spoke on behalf of the people on, unto God, representing God you know, from the people unto God. Caiaphas, this high priest, instead said, let's kill someone else so that the people might be saved. Jesus, on the other hand, was facing the false high priest as the true people's high priest, saying, I have spoken openly. In other words, what is he doing? I'm the authority. I have said these things. I have done all these things. I'm the focus of attention. Why? He was speaking boldly on behalf of the people that he was about to die. He was speaking openly on behalf of people about to die. The true high priest doesn't say someone else would die for a people. The true high priest rather would say, yes, someone else would die for people. But that someone else is not someone else, but it's me. I will. I will speak openly. And here's the irony, because this third section of this text, Jesus facing the high priest, Jesus being the true high priest, at the middle of this section is this particular claim by Jesus. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What is Jesus saying to Annas and Caiaphas here, the false high priests? Jesus is saying to them, I don't just testify about myself. Anyone could tell you what I told them. What did you just see from Peter, though? Who was Peter? Peter was a witness. Who was Peter? Peter heard everything Jesus said. Who was Peter? Peter knew everything Jesus said. In other words, here's the two scenes overlapping side by side. Peter just denied Jesus. And as Peter was denying Jesus, what was Jesus saying to the authorities? Ask those who, are, who, are, who I know. Ask those who've heard me. Here's the two scenes side by side. It's a tragic, tragic scene and a tragic irony again. As Jesus was saying, as my followers, his followers were denying the very person that they were supposed to be witnessing to. I don't know if you've seen, it's, it's a narrative device in a lot of movies where, you know, there's a scene where, take any movie about adultery. Normally there's this juxtaposition scene where it's, you know, two frames in one scene. There's a wife who's cleaning the home, preparing food for her husband. And then right in the other scene was the husband in the car texting another woman. What is that trying to communicate to you? Why do directors do that? Why do the directors put two frames side by side of a wife being faithful and of the husband being unfaithful? It's to create the impression, this sense, this irony, this tragic sense, tragic contrast of one person's unfaithfulness and another's faithfulness for that other person. That's what John is trying to communicate to you, friends. And before John gets you off of the scene, he zooms right back to Peter. Fourth point, Peter's second and third denial. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, and by the way, the first that first word, verse 25, now. That's trying to signify to you, meanwhile. As this was happening, as Jesus was, to, so to speak, right, at his lowest, Jesus was, so to speak, the most questioned, Jesus was helpless, 
telling others that there are people who would witness and testify to him and about him. You zoom right back to Peter. Camera goes right back to Peter. And Peter was standing. And what was he doing? Warming himself still. Self-interest. And now they, again, we don't, we're not exactly sure who these people are that Peter was standing himself with. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And here comes Peter's second denial. He denied it. And he said, I am not. And then immediately one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Remember that scene? John 18, 1 to 12, remember? Peter had cut off one of the high priest's servants, Malchus, and now a relative of Malchus who was there in the garden with Peter himself, who witnessed Peter do that, who witnessed Jesus getting betrayed, who witnessed everything that happened. It was revealed to you at this point that Peter had been warming himself with the very people that Peter was attacking earlier. The stakes are higher. The evidence is obvious. And now Peter says back, and and, and that relative says to Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? And then Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster or cock crowed. What is the text trying to communicate to you here? What's this imagery about this fire? What is he doing standing and warming himself here? Friends, let's let's go back to Peter here really quickly because he really is a focus of this passage, all right? Jesus was being tested and tried. Peter was being cowardly. Peter was standing and warming himself amidst these people. And Peter was denying Jesus. And now it is revealed who was he warming and standing with. The very people that attacked Jesus. The very people, in other words, that Peter seemingly was in contrast to just earlier in John chapter 18. The very people that Peter attacked, Peter was now standing in communion with. What is John, the narrator, trying to tell you? You see, friends, Jesus in chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, was already alone. It wasn't Jesus and Peter versus the religious authorities and the high priest servant. It was already Jesus from the very beginning, alone, and even if it looked like Peter, the religious enthusiast, was attacking that servant for Jesus' sake, even though it looked like that, Jesus was already standing alone from the very first place. So who was Jesus dying for? Peter and the enemies. And what is this text trying to communicate? Peter was a sinner like every other sinner. There was no distinction, no difference, in other words, ultimately, between Peter, the religious enthusiast, who was a yes man for God, and those who outrightly were anti-theists who attacked Jesus explicitly. What was this trying to communicate to you? One way we could communicate Peter's fall here, this was a great fall, right? One way we could communicate his fall here and his previous enthusiasm and pride, another way to communicate it is this. Peter didn't know himself. Peter thought, I'm the ideal disciple. Peter thought, I am religious. Peter didn't know himself. In other words, Peter didn't know that he too was a sinner. Peter didn't know that he too needed saving. When Jesus, remember that? When Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. Peter says, Lord, no, I will die for you. What was Peter doing? Lord, I'm not the one who needs sacrificing. You do. I'll sacrifice for you. What was Peter doing? He didn't know. He wasn't yet exposed, in other words, friends. Sin doesn't make you a sinner. 
it just exposes who you really are. And Peter didn't know himself. He had to move from this ideal of himself, his self-grandorizing thought, that he was a religious and good old boy. And it needed to be exposed to him that he too was a sinner just like everybody else. And then here in this scene, John was trying to communicate to you, Peter was communing with the very people that he was attacking because Peter was at bottom no different. No different. So final point, let's make sense of this. Let's make sense of what Peter was saying. I am not. I am not. Peter response, Peter's denial was simply saying, I'm not. What does that mean? What was Peter saying? This, I think, you know, if you look at the other narratives in Luke and and, and Matthew and Mark, and, and when it covers Peter's denial, it doesn't say I'm not. He says more than that. But John, for some reason, wants you to know that he said, I'm not. What does that remind us of, right? Peter's statement of denying of Jesus wasn't just a statement of denying someone. It was in direct contrast to what Jesus says about himself. What does Jesus constantly refer to himself as in the John's Gospel? I am. I am. I am. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the lamb. I am the shepherd. I am. I am. I am. I am. Right? Even in John 18, when he was arrested, he says, I am. I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. And the Greek is more terse. It simply just says, I am. And Peter's denial, I think here, is also not just a denial of Jesus, but also a moment of self-realization, a moment of exposedness. I'm not. If you look at the three decisive claims made by Peter throughout John's Gospel, there's a clear progression. John 6, John 13, Peter says, I will follow you. I will, I will, I will, I will. Here, he says, I'm not. The only moment where Peter says anything close to a relational statement was when he was restored by Jesus in John chapter 21. What does he say? Lord, I love you. What causes someone to move from a religiosity that says, I will do everything for God, to a personal, covenantal, relational statement of saying, I love God. How does Peter progress from, I will, I will, I will, to I love, I love, I love? I think, friends, this is one of those key claims. You have to realize that you're not. You have to realize you're not the Savior. You have to realize you're not the victim. You have to realize you're not the righteous one. We have to realize we are not the main characters of this story. We have to realize we're not the main agenda. We have to realize that we have come to church, not friends, not for ourselves, to accrue social honor for ourselves, to show to others on Instagram that we're better than others, to show to other families that our families got to put together. We have to realize, friends, if we're ever wanting to move from a religiosity that says I'm entitled for these benefits, and God will love me because I would do those things to a relational friendship with God of love. It's this realization of saying, Jesus is, and I'm not. I'm a sinner just like everybody else. 
he was moving from a position of pride to a position of realization. I am communing and standing and warming myself with sinners too. I'm not. I'm not him. I'm not the witness. I'm not the righteous one. Do you feel that? Do we feel this guilt? Did you ever have one moment in your life where you thought to yourself, that's it, that's my great fall? It wasn't as if I became a sinner, but I suddenly realized I was exposed. Here's who I really am. Naked. And you feel utterly ashamed, and you are now thinking to yourself, how in the world can I get back with God when I've communed with sinners, when I've realized I'm not Him, when I've realized I'm not perfect? How do you communicate yourself to God? Friends, well, look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 of this text. Now, the servants, who was Peter communing with and what were they communing around? It's very specific. This text wants you to know, in verse 18 of chapter 18, that the servants and officers had made what? A charcoal fire. That's very specific. What were they communing over? What were they warming themselves with? A charcoal fire. It wasn't a wood fire. It wasn't a flint fire. It wasn't just a fire or a campfire. It was a charcoal fire. And interestingly enough, as I was studying this passage, I found out that this charcoal fire was really just one word. It's a little Greek word. It's anthrokia. And that word has only been used in the whole of the New Testament twice. It's only used twice. The first time is here. John 18 verse 8. The second time, can you guess? John chapter 21 verse 9. What? When... Just turn there with me. John chapter 21, verse 9. This is the only time, other time, in the whole of the Bible that this little word charcoal fire has ever been used. What context was this in? Remember the scene? John chapter 21 was when Peter reconciled with Jesus. Remember Peter was fishing They caught a bunch of fish because of Jesus' advice. Jesus has already been resurrected. And Jesus invites Peter back out of the boat. So Peter swam across the sea, went to Jesus and the land, so that Jesus would confront him and ask him the questions. Peter, do you love me? Three times to my what? To match Peter's betrayal. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus knew that Peter had denied him three times. So he reconciled with Peter. And what was there in verse 9? What was there in the land when Jesus met with Peter. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. What was Jesus inviting Peter to? Jesus is saying, Peter, have communion with me here. Peter, I know your betrayal. Peter, I know the very context of your betrayal. Peter, I know you're warming yourself and denying me I know exactly the situation. What happens? Peter, I know the deepest depths, in other words, of what you had done to me. But I now invite you to come fellowship with me still around a fire and have bread and fish with me. How can Jesus say that? Because he already died the death that Peter should have died. He's already died the death for Peter's betrayal. And now the very thing that Peter stumbled over, the very events that Peter 
realized and that, that he was a sinner became the very means of fellowship with Christ himself. Friends, Jesus, the ability, if you believe in him, to turn your greatest miseries into the very reason of why you fellowship with him in the first place. Let us pray. Father, it's incredible to us that you see us at our darkest. Lord, if anything defines love, it is that you know everything that we've ever done, who we are at our lowest, who we've exposed ourselves to be, and yet you see us in our brokenness, our nakedness, our sin, and our lack of repentance and says, come eat with me so that our deepest miseries could become our greatest joys because we now have found you. Father, help us now see this great redemption. You are a great high priest. And you have loved us from the foundation of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.